uh, I initially told the police that I went over there, that she asked me to bring him inside and then I left. But what I didn't say is that she asked me to strangle him and that there's a rope around him and to bring him inside and that she would take care of the rest. I'm sorry, this came out when? (laughs) The day day we were supposed to go to trial. The first time we were supposed to have trial. Welcome to Crime News Insider. This is Jorge Del Portillo. And with us, as always, is Lori Hoff. How are you doing, Lori? I am so great. And it's so nice to to have you on this podcast. And we have a very special podcast this time because I get to interview you, Jorge. I know. I, I was saying, I'm uh-huh. like, we need to get uh, a, a really good guest on. And who better than me well, to put but myself... But we couldn't find anybody. So <laughs> yeah. we were like, oh... You're gonna uh, go with Jorge, and and I'm right here, you guys. And and I was I was just about to say, and in, in addition to Jorge, we have Teresa Fom, who's a deputy district attorney in our office, and together, you both recently did a trial that we wanted to feature. Um, the trial is People versus Jade Jenks. It received a lot of media attention. Um, on December 21st of 2023, Jade Jenks was found guilty of murdering her former stepfather. Tom Merriman. He was the founder of Butterfly Farms in Encinitas, which, and he was a, he was sort of a beloved member of the community. So he he received a, there was a large outpouring when he died and a lot of publicity as a result. This trial was covered on a lot of fronts all across the nation. And we figured, well, who better to, to talk about this than our very own prosecutors and our very own podcaster. So welcome, Jorge and Teresa. I'm happy to to have you on our show. Well, thanks for having me. I just want to say uh, I listen to the podcast <laughs> all the time. I'm a frequent listener. But welcome, Teresa. Thank you for coming on to the podcast and talking about our trial. Oh, definitely. I've been looking forward to it. And plus, I did get a little strong arm by you. I could tell the pressure when you asked me about it. So <laughs> exactly. I couldn't say no, but happy to be here, guys. So tell us, just tell us a little bit about for for those listeners who aren't familiar with this trial and what it entailed, what what the facts are. Yeah. So the facts are on January 1st of 2020, a person named Adam Siplak called the San Diego Sheriff's Department to report that his friend confessed to him to murdering her stepfather, her former stepfather, and he just wanted to report that. The investigation revealed that basically what happened was on December 23rd, 2020, Tom Merriman had been in the hospital at Scripps here in in San Diego and was moved to an aftercare facility called Aviera. And his stepdaughter, Jay Jenks, was uh, decided to clean up his place before he was going to be discharged within the week. And so when she's cleaning up his apartment, she bumps into the computer and lo and behold, she finds a picture of women's breasts on his computer screen. And she recognizes the picture as her own breast. She investigates a little further and finds more nude photos on Tom's computer. And this left her very disturbed by the discovery and so much so where she couldn't shower alone. And she feared that Tom was going to discharge early, come home and find out that she discovered this. She didn't know what to do, so she reached out to a person named Alan Roach, who was a friend of a friend. She never really met him or anything like that. 
And she saw him as this kind of fixer that he's the guy you go to if you need a problem that needs fixing and you don't want to go to the authorities. The evidence we'll talk about, but it basically shows she formulates this plan to kill Tom and stage it to look like an overdose when he's in his beds to suffocate him there. So on December 31st, 2020, that's when Jay Jenks goes to pick up Tom Merriman and go through with this plan. Tom, not being the wiser, obviously doesn't know about her murder plot. She picks him up and is waiting for this guy, Alan Roach, to show up and help her commit this murder, but he never shows up. He sends his friend Brian Solomon out to help out, but when Brian learns about her murderous intent, he gets out of there. Uh, she even asked him, hey, I want you to strangle him and bring him inside. Brian wanted none of that and bolted out of there. Jade called her friend Adam to help her out, and he wanted none of it. She confessed to him that she strangled him uh, and suffocated him with a plastic bag, and he says, I don't want any of that. She asked him to move him uh, using a wheelbarrow into Tom's house, and you know, Adam said, no, I'm, uh, I'm out of here. So he left and called the police the following morning after he slept on it. When the police showed up and they were looking for Tom, they couldn't find him. They brought her in for questioning. She said, oh, that's funny. You know, I picked him up from the hospital. I don't know where he is. And they did a search warrant for Tom's house. Couldn't find Tom anywhere. And it was in, until the following morning, January 2nd, that they're looking in the driveway. They see a pile of trash. They remove a bag and authorities see the silhouette of a man. And they find Tom's body buried in under that pile of trash. It was there the whole time. They it didn't was there know. the whole time they were walking by it. But, you know, she designed it and covered it to make it look natural and and to hide it pretty, pretty well in plain sight. Wow. And I think given the time frame of it all being after Christmas, New Year's Eve, there's a lot of people who would have probably a lot of trash um, cardboard boxes from the holidays, you know, with mm -hmm. presents and stuff like that. So I don't think the deputies thought too much of it with this trash, this pile of trash that's in the driveway. Yes, what did exactly. they do? What did they do after that? Did was was there anything in her phone? Was there anything um, that they that police ended up learning about um, her planning? Definitely, um, I think so. I remember Lori, you actually assigned me this case. That's right. I know. I know. Me. I was going to mention that. Yeah. I remember. <laughs> so I you, remember this case when it came in. Yep. So you called me on January 2nd because at that point, um, Jay Jenks had been arrested in the early morning of that that morning because that, that's when they found Tom's body was like at seven o'clock in the morning. They went to arrest her. And I think you called me some point later on in the day. And that happened to be my birthday. Oh, so wow. Happy birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday. Get a murder. I know, right? So um, actually in our office, that that's, that is kind of a good birthday. Yes. Unfortunately, yes. we're a sick, we're a sick group. We're like, we are, oh, yeah, we got... we're a weird bunch. <laughs> I was actually excited when you gave me that. Mm -hmm. I mean, granted what what's happening with the with Tom and the family and stuff. But I remember so got the case, of course, reached out to the detective. The lead detective was Matt Gibson from the Sheriff's Department, talked to him. But at that time, so Jay got arrested on January 2nd in the early morning. They hadn't gone through Jay's phone yet. They have it because she got arrested. She she had it when she got arrested. So I think as the case was progressing, I think I went to the autopsy on 
January 3rd, the next morning, I don't think they had a chance to go through the phone yet, but I think at the time of the autopsy, all we knew was the confession mm-hmm. to Adam Sipliak, um, right. the person that ended up calling 911 or calling dispatch um, the next step on January 1st. So I think it was a day or two after that was when they actually were able to go through the phone. And that's when we got that that treasure chest of all those text messages that Jade sent to various people and specifically the most incriminating ones were definitely the one that she sent to the fixer, Alan Roach. And what did she say to the fixer? Jorge, I'm going to let you take this part because I know you (laughs) comb through those text messages like like the detective that you are. So some some of the highlights were the main one that we featured heavily in the trial with our questioning of all of our witnesses is the phrasing, I just dosed the hell out of him. So we knew that she confessed to Adam that she had drugged Tom. We didn't know how or what, but then we found this text message that said, I just dosed the hell out of him. She sent a bunch of text messages in the line of, I really didn't want to involve that many people. I didn't want to be the one to do this. It's going to be weekend at Bernie's, which if you've seen that movie, it's where, you know, the person is dead. Bernie is dead. And the two people are acting as if he's alive and moving around his body. And she she also wrote things like, I can't keep a kicking body in my truck or trunk. She probably meant trunk. So there was a lot of very incriminating text messages, especially now that we had the dead body. But really, they could have been interpreted if she had a defense of, hey, I, I just had a plan to confront him about these nude photos, nothing else. So like if she wrote, I didn't want to involve that many people. Well, I meant my in my plan to confront him about these nude photos. Uh, I can't keep a kicking body in my truck. Well, yeah, he's in my in my car and I I need someone here to help me confront him and be stand guard while I confront him. So although the text messages were very, very damning. There is that plausible kind of interpretation if the defense could sell it to the jury. And so how did both of you prepare for the eventual trial that that happened recently? Teresa, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there was a good natural division in the case where I had the cell phone. I was I was tasked with knowing all the text messages of of Jay Jenks. And also the technical and and, um, forensic stuff. So for like the cell tower stuff and the the medical toxicology uh, witnesses. And then Teresa had all of the civilian witnesses for the most part, right? Right. And then I think some of the detectives that were involved as well. I I agree with you, Jorge. I think we actually kind of play to our strengths because I know that you're with the background that you had with the prior rotation that you had where you're doing the fentanyl overdoses. So of right. course you're going to handle the toxicology portion. Mm-hmm. And then you're just so much more technically savvy than I am. So it makes sense that you would do the cell phone text messages, cell tower data as well. And given the fact that I had the case on day one, so I was already familiar with a lot of the civilians, witnesses that I ended up being in charge with. And of course, working with some of the some of the detectives, specifically Matt Gibson from day one, you know, I had a whole laundry list of things for him to do. 
like that first week, second week, even the first month of, of the case as well. So yes, it was a, definitely a natural division. And I think it ended up working out really well between the two of us. You know, part of it is preparing for trial is also building the investigation. And that was all Teresa. Teresa had this confession to Adam and she said, we need to corroborate this. We need to go yeah. talk to this witness, that witness mm-hmm. throughout the county, even into Orange County. The, you know, he, Adam said he was getting a tattoo when he first received a call from JJ. Teresa said, let's go yeah. talk to the tattoo shop. And then mm-hmm. Adam went to a friend's house. Let's go talk to that friend. I mean, we, they interviewed like over 40 witnesses. Oh, absolutely. And I even told Detective Gibson, like, if there's a receipt, I want that receipt. Right. If there is a, if there's like a video of it, I want that video. I mean, anything we can do to cooperate. Cause before we, we went through Jade's phone as thoroughly as we did, even earlier on, I was like, Adam is our star witness. I mean, he eventually is still, as far as the witnesses are concerned, I think he was definitely the main witness. So I knew we needed to make sure that the jury, any way we can, we can, you know, buttress his, his, his testimony, you know, make him more credible. And, and unfortunately, Adam came with a whole laundry list of, of a past. Well, we can't, we can't pick our witnesses, right? Oh, we just, absolutely. We, we get what we have and then, mm-hmm. and then, you know, our job is to tell the truth at trial and present, present all of it. You know, we always think, I think people tend to think the case is, well, by the time it gets to you, the case is already done, right? All you have to do is put it on a trial. What's so hard about asking what happened next? And I, what I think people fail to realize is we, we know we, we, know, we have to have, and we have an ethical obligation, obviously to, to, you know, not file cases unless we know we can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt at the time of issuing that that's not, that's not, that's only part of it. We, we knew that Jade was, you know, the killer, we knew she was responsible for her stepfather's death, but now we have to go through all the details, right. That, that, that ultimately get presented to a jury. And what that means is, you know, as prosecutors, we are sort of going through all of that and making sure all of the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed. And we have that evidence to present to a jury. Mm-hmm. And it Definitely. sounds like that's, that's what you did, you know, even following the arrest and leading up to trials to make sure that, that all the pieces were in place. Definitely. And the sheriff's department was so good with doing everything that I asked them to do. And then they had their own ideas as to how to further investigate the case. I think we even talked about other than the motive of her finding those naked photos of herself on her stepfather's computer. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually even went down this avenue of, is was there a financial reason as well? So I remember having Detective Gibson do the investigation to that and, you know, with the financial statements and see if there's any sort of financial reason why that could possibly be a motive, an additional motive. And so that's how far we continue doing the investigation, even while the case was still pending. And then one of the, the sort of the interesting pieces of trials and our work, and I'm sure you found this, is you spent how many months, you know, culling through all the evidence, making sure, you know, every everything was followed up on, but then you get to trial. And I feel like for me anyways, and, and as much as I can be prepared, as prepared as I am, trial is almost like its own beast. It takes on a life of its own. Did you feel like that happened in this case? Uh, yes, for sure. But of, of all the trials I've I've ever done, I felt the most prepared for this trial mm-hmm. than any other trial. Wow. We, Teresa mm-hmm. and I 
collaborated so well together and had the time and freedom and resources from our office to be able to dedicate and plan and prepare. We plan for every contingency there could be, every wow. defense that yeah. there could be, you know, could it be a third party, could it be a, a heat of passion, could it be something else. And Teresa and I, we knew this case so well and we tried to plan for everything that we really weren't terribly surprised at what the defense could throw at us. Now, there was yeah. some stuff that was surprising, like, you know, her defense was that I didn't kill him. Tom just passed out in my car. He took the pills on his own and he just passed out and was asleep in the car. In fact, he had done this several times in the past right. where he had a habit of just falling asleep in the car. So I just let him sleep in the car like I normally do. And when I came there, I freaked out and I, I noticed that he wasn't moving. And so I just panicked. That was the defense. We didn't really predict that part of it. So that, yeah. that's something we had to adjust to. But um, for a lot of it, I felt so prepared. Even though we didn't predict that part of it, I think because we were so well prepared that it was like, oh, okay, fine. You can tell that story because it does not change the evidence yeah. and how guilty you are based on that evidence. Right. The text messages, the confession to Adam, the uh, telling Brian to go strangle him and bring him inside. I'll take care of the rest. So, but... As far as like other trials I've done, I think this one particular trial, I was, I felt the most prepared. And even though as prepared as you are, something always come up that you, you're just completely shocked by. I think with this trial, that really never occurred because Jorge and I had the time and we did have the resources. I mean, heck, we had Scott Stallman on speed dial. He became our personal investigator, pretty much. I mm -hmm. think he was there to do anything that we needed to do follow-up wise. What about witnesses? Because, you know, sometimes you can be as prepared as you want, but sometimes your witnesses are, are you know, go sideways or, you know, don't don't come with their A game. And yeah. um, how did you know? And and a lot of these are her were her friends or acquaintances that, you know, she's she solicited or she, you know, asked to help do this this dastardly deed. How did they um, present in front of a jury? Oh, my gosh. So witnesses. We must have met with them so many times in preparation for the trial. And every single time they come in, we would just go, okay, maybe we don't put that person on, or maybe we have someone else do this portion of it. So we were constantly, we were very open to changing strategies, depending on how the witnesses, how cooperative they were. But as far as how they did in trial, I think the one person that surprised me the most turned out to be Adam. Because mm. Adam is a big, big guy, and he looks like a person that has a past. <laughs> um, has a lot of tattoos, and yeah, and um, he did have a past. I definitely had a past. Mm -hmm. Right. He was tatted all the way up to his neck, I believe, full sleeve on his arms, tatted to his neck. But and he's just kind of gruff guy, and he did not want to testify. He did right. not want to have that street label of being a snitch, you know. So up until the very last minute, we just when we didn't know if he was going to claim the fifth, and we were prepared for that. If he was going to claim the fifth, um, we were prepared that if he didn't come, who you know who who we have in place to go get him. But he came, and he was his true self, mm. which is what's depicted on that video of his interview that very night on January 1st, when he came into the station 
to provide a formal statement. I mean, when I saw that video of his interview, I go, this guy is credible. He is Mm -hmm. telling the truth. And he presented as a truth teller, despite the way he looked. He owned up to the mistakes, the past that he had. And he was, his, his testimony was consistent from the very moment that 911 call that he made on January 1st all the way to the day he took that witness stand and and, and made his testimony. That's really amazing. You know, we always tell people, and we've even done it on the show, that, you know, if you see something, say something. And I think, you know, people are hesitant to get involved these days. They're they're quick to put something on their phone, but they're hesitant to like mm-hmm. call the police and follow through and what that means when when, you know, it's total disruption of your life and could potentially even be, you know, problematic for for your own self to have w- witnesses and citizens come forward and say this is what this is what happened because we can't prove cases without that. And there was one witness that was very scared to be involved with this murder and he didn't disclose a bombshell until (laughs) the day of trial of september 28th when the original trial was supposed to go forward on september 28th 2022 the trial ended up going uh it was early december december 3rd or 5th or so of 2022 but on september 28th that witness brian solomon that we mentioned earlier came to court and the the trial was postponed. Well, he, we wanted to give him a heads up of what to expect that trial. You know, the standard speech of, hey, only one person speaks at a time. Remember, there's a court reporter there, things like that. He came up to our office and he just looked uncomfortable and really had to get something off his chest. And that's when he disclosed, hey, I didn't tell the police everything. Mm. I, I initially told the police that I went over there that she asked me to bring him inside and then I left. But what I didn't say is that she asked me to strangle him and that there's a rope around him and to bring him inside and that she would take care of the rest. I'm sorry, this came out when? (laughs) The day day we were (laughs) supposed to go to trial. The first time we were supposed to have trial. So we knew on September 28th that it was going to continue because there was some scheduling conflicts, something like that. But... Brian came in because he got a subpoena and Brian was another witness for like, is he going to show? I have been trying to reach out to him and he constantly, his phone numbers was constantly changed because he had one of those phones that I don't think it was an actual, your actual cell phone that you've had for a while. I think you, I think it's probably like a prepaid phone. I'm not sure, but he, his number was always changing. So, and I never got a hold of him. So we're like wondering if he was going to show and he actually ended up showing because of the subpoena. And Mm -hmm. I brought him up to upstairs to our office so that we would give him a transcript of that interview he had the week after the murder. And that's when he dropped that bombshell. That was a huge, huge bomb. I I mean, as you can imagine, Lori, like someone is now saying the defendant confessed to murder. So we knew it was going to be a big deal with the defense. They're going to be like, are you telling this guy? Discovery. You're feeding him. How did you deal with that? First question was to Brian is like, why didn't you tell the police initially? And why are you telling us now? And he said, you know, I was scared. I didn't want to, I didn't know if they were going to think I had something to do with it. And I'm telling you now because I know the truth has to come out. And then our next question was, 
Did you tell anyone else? Yeah. Yeah. Who else did you tell? Mm -hmm. Because as you know, Lori, we have to corroborate that right away before he could go talk to someone else and say, Hey, I just told the DA's office this, you know, Mm -hmm. make sure to tell him that I told you back then. And he said, he told uh, the woman who picked him up when he ran out of there, uh, was a person named Maria Bravo, who was a woman that he has a kid with and is no longer with at the time of this interview on September 28th. So we said, what's Maria's name? Where does she live? And what's her phone number? And we went out immediately, called her and she confirmed it before Brian had any opportunity to speak to her at all. And that was a huge, huge piece of evidence, corroboration of Brian's testimony. And I think Maria testified and she testified very well. Oh, absolutely. Maria. I mean, I wish all of our witnesses were like Maria because she dressed, she dressed appropriately for court. Dressing appropriately is such a big deal. Right. (laughs) Exactly. She just looks like a regular person. It's such a, such an interesting piece of a trial where she's not even a recipient witness at Mm -hmm. all, but ends up being critical. Right. Absolutely. I don't even think she was even on the witness list uh, early on in the investigation because remember I mentioned that Detective Gisson had a whole laundry list of people and things to do. Maria didn't even hit our radar because we weren't even thinking about it at all because we sure. didn't know what Brian had said. So yes, so Maria did great on the stand. She didn't have a bias one way or another. And even at the time of trial, she was no longer in a relationship with Brian. So it's not like they could even defense can even argue, well, you know, that's her boyfriend. Of course, she's going to, you know, you know, say the same thing he's going to say. So she corroborated exactly what Brian said. I think when we called her or spoke to her, she said, yeah, I remember he said she told him to strangle Mm. Tom. So she used that word. She said that was the word that Brian used. Yep. And obviously, I mean, Jade Jinx testified. So they had that version. I don't know if you had a chance to talk to the jury. Obviously, sometimes, you know, jurors leave after the the verdict. This was a, a first degree murder verdict, correct? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So do you have any sense of how they viewed these witnesses or how they viewed Jade's testimony or what was the most compelling thing for them? I, I think because of the quickness of the verdict. So we were in trial about two weeks. They were deliberating less than a full day of deliberation because they got the they got the case on um, I want to say a Tuesday and they got it around 9:45 a.m. 10 a.m. and by 9:30 a.m. the next day we had a call saying we've reached a verdict because wow. it was a guilty for first degree we knew that they believed Brian and Adam and they rejected Jay Jenks right from our experience Everyone watching there too, which was great to have their input. They all agreed that Jade was not doing herself any favors by testifying or she, she couldn't explain simple things and her testimony was not credible. And I, the jury didn't, didn't stick around to, to let us know their thoughts, but Mm -hmm. it, it was pretty clear that they rejected her testimony because she was awful. It was so telling that I did my cross examination. And as you know, the defense has an opportunity to conduct a redirect examination to follow up and clean up maybe some of the issues that I raised on cross-examination. They did not. They, I believe, and this is just pure speculation, (laughs) that the defense thought 
the longer that she's on there, the worse it is for her in front of the jury. So I'm not going to ask any questions. And I think that was the right call because she was not, not testifying credibly. Do you, you know, every time a defendant testifies, I, I, I think there's this common thing that we have in human experience is, you know, we th- if we, if somebody lies, right. And they're, they, they they lie about something. There's a, there's like this surface lie, but they haven't thought through all of the ramifications or implications of that lie. And, you know, what, what you sounds like you got out on cross is she had this surface story, this surface lie that she came up with, but it didn't comport and she couldn't explain all the implications of that, you know, and what we always say is, you know, the, the facts are, you know, the facts, you can't change the facts. And it sounds like she, she just couldn't explain that surface lie. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And it, it really seemed like she obviously prepared before testifying, but even some of the most basic text messages that were very incriminating for example, the, the, the one text message that, you know, we're alleging that she, she drugged him, suffocated him and strangled him to death. There's one text message that says, I just dosed the hell out of him. For any person that's reading that, that sounds like Jay Jenks just drugged Tom Merriman. Sure. She testified. No, no, no. He, he consumed the pills while I was in the store by himself. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't this text message say I just dosed the hell out of him? So when I asked her that, her response was, uh, that's just poor phrasing. And that was very damning. I even asked her the question and I didn't know the answer. We usually are trained. Mm -hmm. Don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. I had to ask this question and I said, you know, wouldn't you agree with me that that these text messages are very suspicious? And she said, yes, <laughs> that was her Thank one time she didn't much. lie. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's amazing. I think with all those text messages too. And I remember when we were going through those text messages, how to present them, things like that is I remember having this conversation with you, Jorge, saying that, you know, it's not like we have just a handful of text messages. We have a whole week's worth of text messages between her and Alan. And even though when we were parsing them out and singling them out to say, okay, what would be a plausible, reasonable explanation, innocent explanation for this specific text? Other than the, I just dosed the hell out of him, we came up with something, right? Right. So then when I said, okay, but if we take this together as a whole, when you make one excuse, when you have an excuse for something, okay, then you have excuse for something else. Okay, then you got an excuse for a third thing and then a fourth of it. You start to lose that uh, credibility, that mm-hmm. believability. And we had, because there were so many text messages, like it's going to be a weekend at Bernie's or he's, you know, he's starting to wake up. He's getting aggressive. I mean, we, we had, reason, we came up with reasonable explanation, possible reasonable explanation she might say to mm-hmm. explain those specific text messages. But then when there were so many, it just loses its it's credibility. And, and I kind of like, you know, that's why this is great that we have this week's worth of text messages between her and Alan Roach. And then Definitely. 
And don't forget, it's the next morning on January 1st where she's already killed him. And now she's got him hit Tom's body. She needs to figure out what to do with it. And she's reaching out to Alan Roach again the next morning, reaching out to some of the same players that she tried to reach out the day before to see if they can come and help move the body. Wow. And those, some of those text messages were like, this is just weird. It doesn't, it doesn't. Very not, cold, very yes, callous. Absolutely. Yes. Very unremorseful. Yeah, she very was much like a, a first degree murderer who's trying to get away with murder. Definitely. Yeah. Something to the effect of help me get this trash out of my driveway or out wow. of the driveway. And right. that's how she referred to Tom was trash. Well, I think, you know, what what an amazing thing, again, that we do for our community, that we bring justice to the community, to the to a case like this where, you know, a man lost his life and um, we can't ever bring anybody back, we say, but we can bring bring a measure of justice in our community. I think both of you did that and you should be commended and you should be proud of the work that you did. I'm proud of both of you. And um, I, I just think that that you did an excellent job. And this is a great case to highlight because, you know, it really, it really reflects all the hard work that you did and just the, the tremendous amount of work that our police officers did all of the teamwork, um, even between both of you, uh, to bring about this result. Yes. And and I, I just want to say the San Diego County Sheriff's department and Matt Gibson and his team did a phenomenal job. I mean, I, and I've worked with Matt on on another case and he's an amazing detective and this could not have been done without the good work of the San Diego County Sheriff's department. And also to work with Teresa, Teresa mm-hmm. and I, I don't think we've, we've ever had a case we we said before where we had a co-counsel, right? We didn't know how um, that was going to go. Yeah. And we, like she said earlier, we really played to each other's strengths and it made it a really uh, undefeatable force uh, in this trial. Like I, I just want to thank you, Teresa, so much for all your work on this case and working well with me and the power of editing all of the stuff that I wanted <laughs> to say that wasn't going to work. Um, yeah. If you if you have a chance to see the rebuttal closing argument, which the defense attorney remarked was one of the best he's ever seen. That was all Teresa Fom and her design of how to present the rebuttal closing argument. So thank you, Teresa. Oh, Jorge, thank you. Likewise, I was, I mean, I remember when Sean Trefeshi, the assistant chief, um, asked, told me, asked me that he was bringing you on board. I was like, thank you. Because that <laughs> case was a, was just it was a beast. Such a, it was a beast and mm-hmm. I needed the help. Yeah. And um, I've never worked with Jorge before. I don't think we ever had a rotation together. Nope. But it made perfect sense with your toxicology background. So right. I, I said definitely. And we did work really well together. Yes. I do want to take the opportunity to give a little shout out to um, our paralegal, Melissa McKemmy. Um, she was there with me from day one and this case got continued so many times even during the prelim process got continued many times in trial we must have gotten continued so many times and we had I think over 50 witnesses on that list so every single time it got continued or trailed she had to reach out to 40 plus 50 some witnesses some of them uncooperative a lot of them uncooperative actually so she was just an absolute just so patient so and with a great attitude a smile on her face so i want to give uh her her due because she was definitely there the whole time and then scott stallman he pretty much became our personal 
investigator while, while we were preparing for the trial. I mean, it takes a village. It takes a huge team to bring a case like this to to its to a jury and to um, to its eventual um, you know result, which was a good result. So, thank you all so much. Thank thanks to our team and thanks to you both. Um, but we're not done today. No. So, Corey, I'm going to turn it back over to you. I know yes. <laughs> I, you are you are the master of of the questions. Yes, I will never take a quiz. I just ask the quiz. Uh, <laughs> Teresa, if you don't know, we have a game at the end of each show and we try to end on a light note. It's called Crime or Fiction, where I ask you and Lori to identify, see if you can identify any of the fake laws. So two are real. One is fake. And you have to guess which law is fake. The theme okay. for this episode is the Solana Beach Municipal Code because this murder mm. occurred in Solana Beach. And uh, you'll kind of see why I chose these laws. So two are real. One is fake. And see if you could guess which one is the fake. Uh-oh. Are you ready? No, I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> okay, here we go. A, it's illegal to have an apiary in a residential zone. Do you know what an apiary? apiary? That was my question. Is, <laughs> it is a beehives, a collection of, hmm. of beehives, raising bees. Okay. So it's illegal to have an apiary in a residential zone. B, okay. it's illegal to tattoo a person's skin if it has a rash or pimples. We had several <laughs> witnesses that had tattoos. <laughs> uh, C, it's illegal to have bamboo over 15 feet tall. This is on a residential property. And the reason why that's there is Jay Jinks had her car covered or the, there was a lot of shrubs and bamboo uh, tall there. So I get it. I get it. <laughs> this is a very uh, Solana Beach mm-hmm. Municipal Code Jay Jinks murder trial theme. Two are real. One is fake. Which one is a fake? Uh, Lori, I'm going to go to you first. OK, I think Solana Beach hates bees. So I think that's true. And I think <laughs> bamboo in Solana Beach is a you know, bamboo just is like weeds in Solana Beach. So I'm going to say B is the false. It's illegal to tattoo a person's skin if it has a rash or pimples in Solana okay. Beach. Okay, I like it. And these are all Solana Beach Municipal Code sections. Teresa, what do you think? Which one is the fake? All right. So I actually agree with Lori. I think it's B because I was through process of elimination. But first and foremost, and I'm going to go on a limb, having spent months preparing for this trial and sitting in trial right next to you for almost three weeks, I feel like B is something that you in your brain made up. <laughs> because, <laughs> right? because of all our witnesses now you tattoos. Know. Yeah. Now you know his brain uh-huh. too well, too well. Yep. Okay. Great, Jorge, what is it going to be? You both think it's B. Let's start with A. You both agree that it's illegal to have an apiary in a residential zone. Those are beehives. Tom Merriman was a butterfly farmer that goes in this theme. You both think this is real. And this one is real. Solana Mm. Beach Municipal Code Section 17.20.040 says apiaries are not allowed in any residential zone. So good job. But maybe you can raise butterflies in Solana Beach, just not bees. All right, let's go to B. You both think this one is the fake. It's illegal to tattoo a person's skin if it has a rash or pimples. And this one is real. It is on the books. Section 66.306 of the San Diego Municipal, um, San Diego uh, County Code 
which is adopted by the Solana Beach Municipal Code, says no tattooing body arts shall be done on skin surfaces which have rash, pimples, boils, infections, or manifest any evidence of of unhelpful conditions. It's wow. on the books. It's on the books. And nothing <laughs> yes. about bamboo. Bamboo can nothing be as about tall bamboo. as you want. Yeah, I can imagine that would be on the books because some people probably want their view and doesn't want it obstructed with bamboo. Exactly. Bamboo. Yeah. That's exactly no. why I picked that one. It was very tricky. <laughs> I was very yeah. shocked to see this tattoo section. You are very oh. tricky. So yeah. right. very tricky. If you're in Solana Beach and you're getting a tattoo, just make sure you uh, don't have any pimples or rash. <laughs> or boils. <laughs> or boils or infections. Well, good job, oh uh, everyone, even though you both lost. <laughs> good job. Uh, and Teresa, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. It feels very weird to have me as the subject of the podcast, but I'm mm-hmm. glad you're here as well. Obviously, you're the co-counsel on the J. James trial. So th- thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your uh your insight uh, to our trial. Of course. Thanks for having me. I really actually had a really good time. Good. Lori, thank you as always. Thank you. So it was so fun to interview you both today. Yes. And I feel like it should be the subject of multiple podcasts that we have. I feel oh, like okay. he would think that. <laughs> I I feel like he would think that too. <laughs> well, it sounds like you guys know me very well, but uh, <laughs> to all of our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Remember to follow us on social media. You can find a link in our show notes and please leave a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, this is the Crime News Insider Podcast. on this podcast are solely of the speakers and do not reflect the views of the Deputy DA Association nor the District Attorney. Questions and comments can be sent to crimenewsinsider at gmail.com. Please leave a rating and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this show. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at San Diego DDAs. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Well,